Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. When Vox staff writer Izzy Ramirez had a beloved bra wear out after 10 years, she went out and bought identical ones from the same company. Unfortunately, this time, the garments wore out in months, and that sent her on a quest to figure out, is the stuff that we buy actually getting worse? Like, not relative to olden times, but just these last few years. Her conclusion? A resounding yes. As she writes, We buy, 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 and we've been tricked for far longer than the last decade into believing that buying more stuff, new stuff, is the way. We'll talk about the dynamics behind the changes she found and also ask, isn't there a better way? That's all coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The idea that consumer products used to be better quality is embedded in our language in the old saw that don't make them like they used to. And there's some wisdom there. The supply chains and production methods and design optimizations actually have changed in ways that we're going to dive into this morning. But there are also glimmers of hope that perhaps this culture of disposability may itself be on the verge of getting tossed away. Let's welcome in our first guest this morning. Izzy Ramirez is deputy editor of the Future Perfect section at Vox and Motomami-in-Chief, according to her Twitter bio. Her recent essay, Your Stuff is Actually Worse Now, inspired the show. Welcome, Izzy. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you for joining us. Uh, We're also joined by Matthew Bird, who teaches industrial design at the Rhode Island School of Design, which, you know, we'll probably call RISD now and then sometimes this morning. Welcome, Matthew. Thanks for having me. So, Izzy, uh, given that there is a 1986 Kenny Rogers song uh, called They Don't Make Them Like They Used To, what's different about kind of your set of concerns, you think, from some guy in the 80s getting mad about the introduction of the Honda Civic? Yeah, totally. So I think for me, as someone who identifies as a member of Gen Z, um, I know a lot of my peers, a lot of you know folks in my age group struggle to identify quality in products. Um, you know, we're very used to this whole fast fashion cycle. We grew up with it. And um, I think that's really impacting the way that we um, see the way that things can last and then also the way that we can repair or take care of our goods. So that was kind of the perspective that I was bringing in. It was just like, if you don't know that things can be better, that you've only ever grown up with, with a certain type of quality, like how, how can you know things are different? Yeah. I mean, you have an absolutely wild stat in your article that consumers are buying five times more clothing than they did back in the 1980s. 
Um, I think it was more so that it was like I don't know the stat off the top of my head. Yeah, it yeah, was yeah. at the at the rate, not necessarily five times, but um, yeah, there's all of these like micro trends, these trend cycles, um, these this idea that oh, like you have a party, you want you know a certain dress to go with it. it. Um, it's not just entirely vanity, but um, it could definitely definitely be tied to the fact that um, social media has accelerated the way that we think our clothing cycles can be. Yeah. And just there's, yeah, there's new stuff coming out all the time and, and you can even see it and just how pants are changing, you know, the, the trends seem to be on a much faster cycle even than, um, you know, when I was in my 20s. Um, Matthew uh, Bird, you know, at the heart of this article is this kind of concept of planned obsolescence and how it has evolved. Can you kind of explain where that term came from and how it's transformed through the years? Sure. I teach design history, and one of the big conversations we have is uh, obsolescence as something that designers have or have not baked into the things they're doing. And it dates all the way back to the Depression, really, when the economic situation was so bleak that it was actually an economic national imperative to try and use design and consumption to get the economy going. Mm -hmm. It was perceived as more valuable to get people working than it was to have a toaster that would last for 10 years. Uh, if you could have one that lasted for five years and twice as many people were working in factories. So it actually was a practical concern. But that very quickly disappeared when we started getting technology that made objects become obsolete just through use and development of technology. So we're now stuck in a funny world where we may not be planning our objects to go in uh, obsolete or or trying to engineer them that way, but we live in a world that expects obsolescence and, and consumes around it. Hmm. We'd love to hear from you. This morning, we're talking about why the quality of consumer goods has declined and what you can do about it. We're joined by Matthew Bird, who teaches industrial design and design history, as you've heard, at the Rhode Island School of Design, as well as uh, Izzy Ramirez, who is deputy editor of Future Perfect, a section of Vox that's focused on, you know, making the world a better place. Uh, She's the author of the recent article, Your Stuff is Actually Worse Now. We'd love to hear from you. We're going to hear some tales of triumph later in the show. But first, tales of woe. Have you bought a product you thought would last longer? And what happened to it? The number is 866-733-6786. You know, you got the vacuum home. You just start, you know, moving around the rugs. And next thing you know, it's already broken. Uh, Tell us those stories of woe of consumer products. The number is 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. You know, Izzy, we were talking about this idea of understanding quality and kind of optimizing away from quality, optimizing to kind of speed. What, what are the other elements that you found, you know, designers and manufacturers and, and not just of clothes, but of, of many things? What are they optimizing for if it's not sort of durability? Right. So I think that there's a lot of factors that are involved in decision making for those things, like one being obviously the aesthetic, the other being, um, you know, the manufacturability, the the ease of getting these goods out. Um, and then, of course, function. And so what I found was that um, given just like the speed of the way that we consume, um, the way that we expect two day delivery, the way that we always want to buy um, instead of repair, um, there's just more demand. um, 
And a lot of places are just incentivized to cut corners, especially when um, there are all of these other outside factors that make it difficult, right? So materials um, are more expensive than they used to be. And that could be in part because of the climate crisis. You know, there's um, issues around natural resources, um, the labor that it takes to um, get things like cobalt, right? Um, or even the the, per- the people that are responsible for making your goods um, at the factories. And so there's just like all of these different factors and design, not even just designers, but like manufacturers, people who make products. Um, you, you have to pick and choose your battles. I don't think you can, like in this day and age, it's really difficult to produce um, really, really quickly without foregoing some elements. Yeah, you know, uh, Matthew Bird, just because I think it's such a fascinating part of the world uh, that we don't talk about that often. When we say manufacturability, um, what do we what do we mean by that? Like, what does it mean to that something might be more manufacturable than another, or that you know less expensive to manufacture something? Uh, what does that mean? Well, that's also changing on a sort of a weekly basis at this point. It used to be that designers would try and get access to the factory to see to talk to the people who are stamping the metal or assembling the parts and redesign the object so that it suited their abilities better. So you are considering the actual processing steps of assembling something in creating the thing. Mm. But now things are made so far overseas, designers rarely have access to any of that information. So you might do a drawing or a CAD model or make plans for an object and prototype it as much as you can, send it halfway around the world where it's assembled partly there and partly out of components imported from other places and the finished good arrives and isn't what you designed because it couldn't be. So I think the disconnect between manufacturing and design is a a real struggle in today's world where it's not just a global economy, it's a whole global sourcing network and, and assembly machine. That's interesting. Right. Because it's like the components from one factory are going into, you know, they're feeding other factories. Right. And then you've got a designer who's, you know, sitting in New York or San Francisco or something who's sending that over to some uh, intermediary. Right. Who then will make sure that that gets manufactured and, and sent back to the U.S. Right. And this goes right back to your song about the, the Honda in the 80s is a car made of parts from different countries, but assembled in Tennessee, an American made car. Or is it a foreign-made car? Uh, it's it's an old conversation at this point, but we're still struggling with it. Yeah. You know, Izzy, one of the other components of your story is just that companies, maybe purposefully at some times, are making it hard to repair uh, what the things that you have. Can you Can you talk about that, too? Yeah, so I want to make a distinction about which companies and how, right? Because, you know, in the, in the avenue of clothing, like, no one's telling you you can't sew on a button um, to repair your clothes. But um, in the avenue of tech, um, there are some design choices that make it a little more difficult to repair your your objects. So a computer that has to have like proprietary screws, you have to have like the special screwdriver to be able to open it. That's a barrier to access, the barrier entry. Um, and then there's also like questions of software repairs um, for some devices that don't really need um, tech. So I think tractors is like a big one um, in recent years where like, things would break down and you would need like a certain type of, you know, uh, repair person or like third party um, to contribute, but it's, it's difficult. And so a lot of companies um, historically have just kind of fought against um, the right to repair um, as one of my sources, uh, Gay Gordon Byrne uh, really spoke about in my piece. Mm-hmm. 
You know, I feel like with clothes, it's more, uh, there's this concept from science and technology studies of like de-skilling. We normally think of that as like workers who've been de-skilled, right? Uh, people who work at McDonald's may not have the same set of cooking skills as people who, you know, work at a, a restaurant that is not a chain in, in quite that way. Um, but it, to me, it almost feels like that, like the number of people who could sew a button on uh, feels like it's probably lower than in 1920, right? That's hard to say, probably. I think the other part, too, is I don't know if people necessarily recognize the amount of labor it takes to make a seam or hmm. to um, to take in pants or a skirt. Um, and that's also the kind of goes back to the fact that, like, most of your goods, there's still humans behind making them. Like, I know a lot of people think that, oh, like, robots are... The, like are making your shirts or your pants or your iPhone. Some parts are, um, you know, manufactured or like components are, but um, usually with most goods, like there's, there's a person behind it. So um, those skills are still alive and well, but it's, I think it's difficult for like the average person to understand like, okay, actually yeah, it's, it is kind of difficult to take in some pants. Yeah. Yeah. We are talking about why the quality of consumer goods has declined and what you can do about it. This uh, show was inspired by Izzy Ramirez, uh, deputy editor of Future Perfect, a section of Vox focused on making the world a better place. Uh, It was her article, Your Stuff is Actually Worse Now, that got us talking. We're also joined by Matthew Bird, teaches industrial design at RISD, and we're taking your calls and comments. Uh, First up is your tales of woe about a product you thought might last longer. The number is 866-733-6786. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, KQED Forum, and the emails forum at kqed.org. We're going to go out to uh, a little Kenny Rogers here. Uh, This is They Don't Make Them Like They Used To. I'm like, we'll be back after the break. And I can't get used to the way that it is today. No one to look up to hard times And though I try I just can't find a reason these days And it seems like the seasons are passing This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about why the quality of consumer goods has declined and what you can do about it. And I have to say, in some cases, as with that Kenny Rogers track we went out on, I have to say, 
kind of glad they don't make them like they used to. Uh, we're joined by Matthew Bird, who teaches industrial design at RISD, and Izzy Ramirez, who wrote a great uh, story called Your Stuff is Actually Worse Now for Vox. I want to bring in um, uh, Roberto, actually, in South San Francisco. Welcome, Roberto. Hi, thank you. Can you hear me? Yeah, sure can. Go ahead. Good morning. So, you know, one thing I've learned from traveling to countries um, with limited access to to American goods, a couple countries come to mind, actually, that actually had um, U.S. embargoes against them. Um, You know, I learned that folks there um, get very creative and innovate to solve, um, you know, to develop solutions to their needs. So, Like, you know, I was lifting weights with this young guy up in a very rural place in Nicaragua. We got to a point where we were really strong and needed more weight. And, you know, I I kept thinking, where can I I get a hold of some weights? Where can I buy weights? And this guy, you know, very creatively um, designed weights from cement, cardboard, a hole in the ground. You know, just really simple solutions that, as uh, as someone from the U.S., I couldn't even imagine. And so I think the easy access to goods that we have here also limits our creativity and innovation in ways that people in countries um, where things are not so easily accessible, mm. they've, they've developed that creativity and innovation. So I think that's that's something that we lose here when, when goods are so easily available and so easily replaced. Yeah. Roberto, what a great uh, what a great call and a, a great point. Um, thank you, uh, thank you so much for that. Um, I, you know, our next guest is actually a perfect follow on for uh, Roberto's call. Uh, Kyle Weens is the co founder and CEO of iFixit. Welcome, Kyle. Well, hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, I kind of wanted you to respond to Roberto because I feel like one of the things that you have done at iFixit, and I think we first talked maybe almost 15 years ago now, is to kind of give people that sense of like creativity back, particularly you started around kind of electronics and those devices. Yeah, we, we like to say if you can't open it, you don't really own it <laughs> Un- <laughs> until you you pop something open and understood a little bit of how it works and what makes it tick. Uh, I, I think you know, we're surrounded by objects. We have more things in our life than ever before. Uh, and, and as a result, maybe our attention and our understanding is spread a little bit thin. Uh, so taking a step back and and learning a little bit more about the things that we have, I think, is beneficial for everybody. Yeah. And, you know, can you tell us a little bit more about iFixit and kind of its evolution? Like, wh- what actually is iFixit? iFixit is a community website, iFixit.com, where we teach each other how to fix things. And so we have information on how to fix everything from a toaster to an iPhone. Uh, and it's step-by-step photo guides. Uh, when the idea is, if you can if you can follow instructions and assemble IKEA furniture, then you can probably fix just about anything that you've got. Yeah, um, we have uh, some great listener uh, comments already coming in as well. One listener writes in to say, "Black and Decker's lower end lawnmower is basically a kid's toy with an engine on it. I pushed it 15 feet, and the front wheel cracked into three pieces. I had to laugh." Worst product ever. Sorry, Black and Decker. Uh, we, uh, Kate writes in to say, our family remodeled a home in 2020. And since, we've had five brand new appliances break. Our biggest splurge, a six-burner range, has broken twice in two and a half years. 
Every single repair person who has come says, nothing's made to last anymore. Extremely frustrating and expensive. You know, Izzy, the question out of that, you know, particularly Kate's uh, comment, you know, consumers are supposed to be able to kind of change the marketplace by buying more of one thing and, and less of another. So why is it that we're not able, if, if what people want is, say, an appliance that uh, doesn't break every two years, why is it that we can't affect those kinds of changes just by kind of like, quote unquote, voting with your dollars? Yeah, I'll, I'll add a few things here too, right? I think a lot of it is like we're, we think that more new is better. So we think like, oh, like the touchscreen uh, washer dryer that sings and connects to your Bluetooth is obviously the best uh, <laughs> way to go when those are just like more components that are like susceptible to breaking. Yeah. Um, and then when it comes to the question of um, your voting with your dollars, I would say, um, that's still kind of true in some aspects, but it's hard when there's not a ton of choices. Like if you try to buy a smart TV, like please let me know, <laughs> like or something that's not a smart TV rather, um, because most models in the market, they're just, you know, they have Roku and Netflix and they have like voice recognition. Um, and so I think a lot of it's like, even though there's so many models, the choice of like a non-techie version is kind of difficult. And then the other part of it too, being like, like voting with your dollars may not be the best avenue or like vote necessarily like voting period but talking to you know calling your local representative is actually pretty effective um there there are people who are working a lot of activism a lot of community work um and that's how a lot of recent legislation has been able to get passed um as well as just um awareness you know there's the ftc there's the um computer or sorry the consumer product safety commission so um there there are a lot of ways that you can have some agency it's not just um through buying yeah yeah uh listener jessica writes in to say i bought an alarm clock when i went off to college after 30 years it started malfunctioning and i occasionally couldn't get the radio to turn off so i bought a new alarm clock it lasted three months (laughs) um i you know matthew bird here's a question i have and maybe kyle we, we come to you on this one too one of the difficulties for me is how am i supposed to evaluate the durability of an alarm clock or a washing machine. Like, I can see what the product looked like. I can see the price that it is. I can see its brand. But how could I actually evaluate those those innards? I think there, there are two different answers I have for you. One is get more informed, understand how things are made and what's inside them. But also, we live in an age where there are customer reviews available, and those are really useful tools. Let some other person's bad experience with this inform <laughs> your decision. But this is actually also part of the history of design. Henry Dreyfus, a very important designer in the 40s and 50s, watched people choosing alarm clocks. He was about to design a new alarm clock, and he wanted to know what people thought about. And he went to stores and watched, and everyone who picked one up sort of judged its weight and put it back down and bought the heavier one. So he determined in his new alarm clock, he was responsible and made it a good clock that was durable and lasted a long time. But he put a metal slug in the base to make it heavier to help steer people's decision-making so they'd buy his clock. And it worked really well, and we still do that. So I would say partly uh, you can use your senses to understand the quality of something, but you have to be informed about what's going on inside. Mm, Yeah. You know, Clay writes in to say, a factor for possible lower quality is the drive to lower prices for consumers. Walmart slash Amazon drive vendors for lower prices with good quality. As one who's worked with retailers, competitive pricing is a major factor, and we re-engineer 
items to hit a price, which, of course, has always been something uh, that happened, but it does feel like the even more competitive sort of pricing is is a factor in this. Um, Alan also writes in to say, bought a new TV a few years ago, and it stopped working a couple weeks shy of the end of the warranty period. A little research found it was likely just a fuse, but opening it up to check would void the warranty. The store replaced the TV for free as it was under warranty, and as I left, I watched them throw it into a pile of electronics, hopefully for recycling. As a, com- as a consumer, I would have preferred to repair the original. Kyle, I feel like this that comment um, from Alan really gets at a lot of the themes of iFixit's work over time, both the that way that warranties kind of prevent fixing things, as well as just the tremendous waste that results because of it. Uh, yeah, so let me step in very quickly and, and dispel a myth. He is not alone in thinking that opening it would void the warranty, and that is absolutely incorrect. Uh, the Magnuson-Moss Warranty Act that goes back to the 1970s specifically makes it illegal for manufacturers to void warranties if you open them up and do repairs yourselves. Uh, so if you ever see a product... Why do we all think that, those, Kyle? <laughs> I know it, it, I, if you were to pick 10 people off the street, all 10 of them would say, of course, it voids the warranty. It does not. And the FTC has launched a campaign. If you can find a warranty void if removed sticker on a product, the FTC would like you to take a picture of it and put it to reportfraud.ftc.gov. It is fraud. Wow. Wow. Uh, this is the most pervasive myth. And the, the FTC is kind of culpable for this because they're in charge of enforcing the law and they've been asleep at the wheel for the last 30 years and let manufacturers get away with it. Yeah. But they have started enforcing this. They filed enforcement cases against Harley Davidson and Weber Grills last year, uh, saying, "Hey, your your the terms that you have in your manuals, just in your user manuals, are flat out illegal." Huh. Wow, so interesting. Um, we'll come back to the uh, waste problems first. Let's go to Mary in Belmont. Welcome, Mary. Hi. Um, thank you so much for letting me join this conversation. Um, I think it's such an important one to have, and it's. Uh, one that I've struggled with for so much of my um, my career. I, I studied industrial design in college, and I feel like from the from the get go, that the term planned obsolescence bothered me. Um, was it Brooke Stevens who kind of made that like the fourth or you know a, a conversation topic in the fifties? And you know, I'm in school and I'm learning these things. Like, okay, so we're going to be constantly designing essentially trash to constantly. <laughs> get people to want more, to think they need more, and that we're going to design lesser products to constantly shift and change and make people feel like they need different things. And so inherently you're not designing for life, you're designing for the trend and the, you know, the cycle around it. And I just kind of feel like, have we reached like the pinnacle of that concept that we are now in the age of trash i don't know <laughs> yeah right like the i mean it makes sense that there would be a balance between these factors and in industrial design to me right mary but I, I it does feel like maybe things have swung the pendulum has swung too far uh in in one direction um you know i wanted to get at a specific example of this uh that's that's pretty interesting pam writes in izzy this is coming to you pam writes in to say Around the 2008 recession, fabric got thinner and flimsier and never came back. Sure, lightweight fabric has certain draping qualities, but it also gets holes instantly. It's impossible to find fabrics, uh, heavier fabrics anymore. And I, you know, you actually talk about this specific thing, like the changes in materials, Izzy, in your story. Yeah, yeah. 
in the fashion world, it's very fascinating, right? Because we we see the rise of synthetic material, right? So that's your polyester, that's your acrylic. Um, and it's hard to know, like, with, like, because like those materials are can be very useful. Like nylon has like a very like helpful purpose, although they're made from like petroleum, right? Like <laughs> you want your exercise clothing to be stretchy and to move with you, but maybe not your the quote unquote like wool sweater to have acrylic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of this is, you know, to help reduce prices. It's a lot cheaper to have synthetic materials um versus, you know, having to shear the sheep or having to source the cotton and then run it through all the processes that it has to go through in order to become thread for material. And, you know, with, you know, clothing, particularly in like the last few years of just like thinner and thinner, thinner material, like that's just like the fast fashion mountain just getting higher and higher, especially with, um, you know, companies like Sheen, um, Cider, just like, again, these are companies that are churning out thousands of new styles like a week thousands Mm. it is it is truly 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 like the the scale of how much they're producing is kind of unthinkable um compared to even 10 years ago when we all thought that like oh h&m and zara was like the worst there is (laughs) like you know right so like they make like zara and like h&m and like that kind of middle market you know forever 21 those types of stores like look so much better by comparison i think that's kind of scary yeah yeah We're talking about why the quality of consumer goods has declined, what you can do about it. Joined by Izzy Ramirez, deputy editor of Future Perfect. Her article, recent article, was Your Stuff is Actually Worse Now. Uh, Also joined by Matthew Bird, who teaches industrial design at RISD, and Kyle Weens, who's the co-founder and CEO of iFixit. Okay, we're going to take more of your tales of woe, but we also want to hear some tales of triumph, where you have had some product, it has broken down, and you have fixed it. All right, you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. These are your tales of triumph over the age of trash. Um, that number is 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. Let's go to uh, Arzu from Livermore. Welcome. Hi. Um, so I have a story about my mom, Galaxy um, S8 phone, which she bought in 2016 and she still uses. However, the phone is basically unusable because Samsung decided two years ago that they will no longer support the software for it. So I was thinking, your guest was saying earlier how like the need for jobs also kind of fuels the need for lower quality products or short-lived products. Why don't these companies just have a division to keep these older phones working? Mm. So people like my mom, who, you know, love their phone and the hardware is perfect, um, can still use it. Yeah. Such a good question, Arzu. Um, Kyle, let's come to you on this. Uh, sure. Well, we're, we're talking to Silicon Valley, so there are probably people listening who are involved in making the decisions that uh, make the software not last long enough. Um, you know, Fairphone is a is a startup smartphone manufacturer, and they uh, they just um, released an update uh, for their Fairphone two that was seven years old. So they've managed seven years of software support for that device. So it is possible. Um, Apple tends to do a little bit better job on the phones than than Android and Samsung do. Google has rolled out their Google um, Android one. Uh, program with an attempt to to make software available longer, but it is a major issue, and I think that this is something that we all need to be pressuring 
uh, the manufacturers. I, I'm a software engineer, and I can tell you this is just a matter of will and effort. We can make these things last longer. We can get software out on, on the older phones. Manufacturers just have to decide to prioritize it. Yeah. Matt writes in to say, my Google phone's battery died and repair shops only fix Apple or Samsung for like 50 bucks, but my phone costs $150 for the same service and a new phone after discounts and trade-in is about twice the price. So they're just very good at making a new product just cheap enough and fixing things just expensive enough to make you bridge uh, the gap. Let's go to uh, Chris in uh, Sonoma County or... Hey, Chris, can you hear us? Hi, yeah. Um, I just had a quick question regarding, like, well, uh, it's two cell phones that I've purchased. One of them, uh, it was a pay-as-you-go uh, pay company. It was a free phone because I transferred to their service. That phone fell from about three feet. The screen was completely destroyed, wouldn't work anymore. I transferred to a different cell phone company and purchased the phone through them. And I, again, dropped my phone, cracked the screen, but the screen is just barely fractured, whereas the other one was completely destroyed. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I, I'm just wondering if that is intentional through those companies to make uh-huh. it so that, you know, though you get this free phone for transferring, if you drop it, it breaks versus going to a separate company where it's, uh, you know, you have credit and you pay yeah. the payments and all of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, good good question, Chris. I would, you know, Matthew Bird, I would bounce this one to you quickly. I mean, one thing that does seem to have improved about consumer goods is the quality of the gra- of the glass on higher-end cell phones, yeah? I, I just, I, I actually want to, um, I'm going to ignore your question and go back to what the caller asked. I don't think any manufacturer is trying to make a phone that will break instantly. They're trying to make a phone they can give you free. Because that's what you want. So the the problem is we're cluttering up our landfill with disposed phones. But more people have access to more technology than ever before. So it is a really difficult tightrope walk to, to manage. How are you going to give people the products that they want and will use at a price that you can afford and still make money? I don't know the answer, but I think that's the equation. Mm-hmm. We're talking about quality of consumer goods why it's declined, what you can do about it. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. 
I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about why the quality of consumer goods has declined, what you can do about it with Kyle Weens, co-founder and CEO of iFixit. Matthew Bird teaches industrial design at RISD. And Izzy Ramirez, who's the deputy editor of Future Perfect. That's a section of Vox focused on making the world a better place. And she recently wrote, Your Stuff is Actually Worse Now. Um, we have some other really good comments coming in. Shana writes in to say, Sometimes you can vote with your dollar to get better made things and things that can be repaired. But ironically, those things are often more expensive. It's neither fair nor sustainable for the things that can be repaired to only be available to more affluent people. Uh, Sarah also has quite a... uh, uh, a relatable um, anecdote. Sarah writes in to say, growing up in the 1980s, I fondly remember playing the board game Mousetrap with my family. I think people probably do remember. Some, some people, 1980s kids will uh, remember this. I remember it being a well-built game that was consistently good at rolling the small metal ball down the ramp and successfully trapping the mouse. I'm now a parent and recently bought the Mousetrap game for my daughter, and wow, the quality has declined. A true example of value engineering. It's made of cheap plastic, not that sturdy, and there's no guarantee that you'll get a successful trap of the mouse each time because one part might fail. Sigh. Um, Let's get a tale of, I believe it's a tale of triumph, from Jim in Healdsburg. Welcome. Hey. Glad to be here. And I've listened to your program for years and years. Of course, it wasn't your program to begin with, but anyway... (laughs) I'm enjoying the program. This is a fairly simple one. I've got a tea kettle that I bought a number of years ago, probably four years ago. And after about two years, the tea kettle, which has a plastic uh, little window to tell you or show you how much water is in the tea kettle, Mm -hmm. what happened was it started to leak. And it leaked so much that it was, you know, it was really problematic. And I decided, you know, I'm not going to go buy a new one. I'll just fix it. So I got a um, a type of sealant that's a non-toxic sealant, and I forced it into the crack around that little window. And sure enough, it works, and it's been working for the last two or three years with no problem. So things can be fixed, but you have to kind of think it through. <laughs> so that's my story. And now, Jim, every time that you heat up water, do you just have like a little spark of pride that you fixed it successfully? Well, actually, it's more than a little spark of pride. You know, I'm a kind of a do-it-yourself guy because, quite frankly, I live up in the hills uh, above, it's actually above Geyserville, mm-hmm. and it's too far away from for the average person to come up and do home repairs. So you have to do it yourself. Huh. And so th- I've been here for 42 years and it's just, you know, it's just something you decide you're going to learn how to do it yeah. and you do. I love and, that. you know, sometimes you can ask around and if you've got neighbors, they'll give you a hand. They'll give you ideas. Yeah. So anyway, that's my story. Jim, what a good story, Jim, from the hills uh, above Geyserville. Also, thanks for listening to the program for a long time. It's not my show. It's our show. It's all of us together here. Um, uh, Let's go to uh, another call. Let's go to uh, Greg in Woodside. Welcome, Greg. Good morning. I just want to say, um, yeah, this is a very um, thorny subject for me because 
I, you know, work in environmental protection and you just think about all the waste and all the input that goes into these products that end up right into the landfill. But, you know, like, um, you know, buying clothes, you wash them once and they turn into kids' clothes. Or my biggest pet peeve is the products that have the lifetime warranty, um, like auto parts. Like I'll fix my car and the part has a lifetime warranty. And then after three months, it breaks. And sure, you can, you know, spend four hours pulling it out again and bringing it back in and getting another part that lasts another three months. So <laughs> they kind of, you know, <laughs> try to trap you into the thing saying, oh, well, there's a small percentage of people will actually return it and, you know, that whole nightmare. But I think the biggest thorn is uh, I one year purchased LED lights for a lot of households in my family. And, you know, they were about 15 bucks a piece, and I, they have a lifetime, you know, uh, warranty on them. You know, so I was thinking they'd last a really long time, save a lot of electricity. Within one year, <laughs> they started going out. Oh, no. I'm still fuming about that one. Oh, man. Um, Greg, thank you uh, so much. I, I feel like getting at these environmental issues actually is really important. Um, Izzy, can you talk a little bit about what you learned about, you know, I mean, Future Perfect, your your job, you know, at, at Vox really is about like trying to make this better future. So like, do you see this change in kind of consumer culture around this as one of the big problems we need to solve? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think, you know, this was a, a piece that was also cross-posted with um, The Goods, which is a section on consumerism. But, you know, the way that we think about environmentalism um, for the global north versus the global south, that's something that we really try to think about a lot at Future Perfect in addition to, you know, potential solutions. We're a very solutions-oriented desk. So it's funny that I wrote this piece and there weren't like, you know, the solutions aren't were at that scale because it's so different for every single place. But yeah, like, the 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 fact that we're just generating so much garbage um and that is such a huge huge problem and i don't really see it relenting unless we do something about it yeah kyle do you want to i know you've thought about this particularly on the kind of e-way side and electronic waste you want to chime in here well e-waste is the fastest growing waste stream it's a it's a huge challenge the amount of uh you know trash that we create is, is significant and and it's it's not just the at the end of life it's it's really the upstream it takes 250 pounds of raw material dug out of the ground to make your smartphone uh, the amount of of raw material and energy that goes into these if we could get every american to use their phone for just an extra year it would be the equivalent of taking 600,000 cars off the road so we have to find a way. Is these yeah. jaws dropping? We have to find a way to uh, to get this uh, to get this uh, it, these products lasting longer. Yeah. Um, and and increasingly, I think the challenge is that products have batteries built into them. And so the battery is sort of a planned obsolescence kind of a thing because batteries only last for you know a, a year or two years, and then they need to be replaced. Uh, and, and so we have to plan on regular maintenance. So think about every time you buy a product with a battery. Plan on performing maintenance of that every two years. And so you should ask the question, if I'm buying this thing, am I going to be able to get a battery in two years? Some products like Apple's AirPods, there's no way to get a new battery for it. So they're just disposable. Hmm. So interesting. Um, there is a local resource that we've just gotten in uh, one of the comments. Peter writes in to say, the Fix-It Clinic is a local resource with a lot of information on their website, fixitclinic.org and in-person events. And they're planning an event this Saturday from 11 to 2 at the San Mateo Public Library. You can bring broken electronics, 
uh, appliances, toys. They'll do an assessment, disassembly, and possible repair, and they'll provide workspace tools and guidance by specialists. So if this topic is near and dear to your heart and you're not in the hills above Geyserville during the storm and you can get to San Mateo Public Library, um, then you might want to want to check that out. Uh, the fix and clinics are really fun. Oh, that's cool. Have you been to one and seen what it's like? Yeah, absolutely. They're just a blast. And, and you can just go and watch people take stuff apart. It's pretty cool. <laughs> I, you know, if something has software, I feel like I know how to fix it. Hardware kind of breaks down for me. What can I say? Um, let's uh, go to David in Palo Alto. Tale of Triumph. Oh, hi. Hi, David. Glad to be on the program. Hello. Yeah, I had a good tale, and uh, it reminded me of my childhood when we uh, bought a car and it was uh, in need of repair. We would just prop it up and get under it and take out parts, and we replaced things like even high-pressure steering lines. Um, but uh, these days, it seems like everything in cars, uh, more modern cars especially, requires a lot of uh, special care and tools. Uh, my daughter, though, she was in high school last year, a senior, and she bought a used car, and uh, she uh, was... Uh, not paying full attention and caused the front grill to crack up against uh, another car. And uh, it wasn't uh, a lot of damage, but taking it in would have been several hundred dollars. Uh, so uh, I showed her what we could do. We went online and we bought uh, the part. We got the exact part off the car. And uh, together we kind of disassembled, disassembled the front of the car. It was a Volkswagen. It wasn't too complicated. Uh, and took out, we had to take out the lights and the screws. But we got it all out and put that grill back in there. And uh, it worked like a charm, and it looked like it was brand new. So uh, I was I glad it. for her to be empowered to see that she can do that, that you're not at the mercy of, you know, the next body shop to just quote whatever price they tell you because you can actually get the parts and figure out you know, how much uh, cost and work it takes to, yeah. to fix your own thing. Ah, David, I love it. That is a tale of triumph, and it reminded me actually of one of my favorite stories of watching my dad disassemble an entire Kubota tractor <laughs> and they were all laid out in our yard in rural Washington state uh when I was a teenager and then put it all back together and it totally worked it was one of the most incredible things I've I've ever seen I wish that uh, he had passed that down to me um let's go to uh another designer let's go to Bruno in Livermore welcome Bruno hi there yeah so I'm a mechanical engineer focusing on product design um, here for about 12 years. And one thing I often see is vendors will try to reverse engineer simple products, complex products, but they won't always understand why certain de design choices were made. And so they may cut corners to reduce cost in those aspects. And then later on, you can see some pretty, um, you can see issues in your product. And so for me, I always, if I'm looking for a product I'm not familiar with, I try to look at reviews, try to, figure out um, how reputable <laughs> the company is um, and normally end up paying, you know, 15% more, but it'll last 50% longer. Yeah. Hey, thank you for that, uh, Bruno. Um, Matthew, do you, uh, do you relate to that experience or do you, you want to comment on what uh, Bruno said? Yeah, I think if, for me, I keep thinking about the local hardware store I have where I can go ask them about the things they're selling. They've vetted everything for me. And there are people who have been in business for 100 years. And there's a relationship I have with them and their expertise. And in a world where we're buying things online, we've given up on that personal mm, relationship. 
So I think, I mean, I said it earlier, I think the customer reviews are such a fantastic tool in today's world to be able to learn from the collective experience of consuming an object. Even if it's what was their last model like, will that guarantee that the new model is good? No, but you, it might help you establish a relationship with the online vendor or the manufacturer that you have no access to otherwise. That's good. You know, Bill writes in along that same theme, Matthew. We have an appliance guy who is very old school. He'd rather tell me how to do it than come out and, quote, spend my money. Other repair services will charge just to come out. He told me there's a concerted effort for built-in obsolescence. They last five to seven years, and that's it. After my dad died, we gave my cousin his washer and dryer he bought in 1973. She's still using it. It's another one of those, you know, the personal relationship of the appliance guy who can actually explain what's going on. Um, Jay writes in with a with a fun comment. Everyone should take basic stagecraft classes. A decent program teaches students the basic of costumes, sewing, lighting, electric, scene shop, carpentry and painting techniques, and props in which you have to know how to be a Jill of all trades and do a bit of all of the above. Uh, and Martha writes in, and I think uh, I feel like every mechanically inclined person I know um, <laughs> would, would agree with this. I just wanted to give a shout out to all the posters on YouTube that show how to fix things. We fix the oven, the dishwasher, my car latch, and more. They are the best. Um, one question on that uh, for you, Kyle. Do people have to be careful if they're, you know, I'm thinking about when I was like learning how to fix my water heater a few years ago from a YouTube video and there was a little alarm in the back of my head like, <laughs> should I be fixing my water heater <laughs> with, the, with a YouTube video? Well, the nice thing about about information online is is you get you get comments, so you can see very quickly uh, on I fix it. Our information very quickly trends toward being accurate. I fix it as a wiki, so people can improve it over time. Um, so I, I would say the fear uh, is is your your biggest enemy. Um, we find overwhelmingly once people pick up a screwdriver, remove the first screw, they're generally successful. It's it's all in your head. It's convincing yourself mm. to believe in yourself to try the repair. Yeah. Um, Zoe writes in to say, I have a general electric clock radio from 1983 with a sweet fake wood exterior finish. It still works. 88.5 comes in perfectly. I call him Old Awesome. Well, uh, respect to Old Awesome, Zoe. Thank you. Um, let's uh, bring in Jay from Redwood City. Hey, Jay, can you hear me? Yeah, hey. Oh, uh, oh. I just wanted to see if you're a guest. Uh, has figured out any kind of predictions on what's going to happen when EV cars have completely taken over and that the type of waste that's going to be generated through batteries. And, and is it ultimately worth it to replace ICE cars that mm. pollute as they run, but they won't be polluting batteries into our environment? Like what, what kind of impact has, has it figured out? Mm, that's interesting. Kyle, have you guys taken on, uh, Kyle Weens, have you taken on cars yet? Yeah, so I, I mean, in general, I'm a fan of keeping everything that we can running. If you have a reasonably fuel efficient car, keep it running. Uh, we don't, we're, we can't manufacture EVs fast enough, uh, but we do need to start talking about what happens to EV batteries at end of life. Uh, and I think it's really critical. Like th these batteries, there's a huge amount of material in them, and, and at the point, let's say, let's say, batteries down to 75% capacity, it's not good enough to be in a car. Why can't we pull those batteries out of the cars and use them for grid uh, backup? Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, those batteries could could have another 10 years of life uh, functioning, helping out the grid before we move them to, to final resource recovery and recycling. Yeah. There is a lot of effort going into EV battery recycling. There's a lot of federal funding on that. Uh, we're not very good at it right now, but there's a lot of startups working on getting better at it. Yeah. Matthew Bird, do you have any thoughts on this? Unfortunately, my answer always is the the only solution is to stop driving or or (laughs) use public transportation or change our behavior because the the one underlying truth is we are addicted to our behaviors of convenience. I'm not being critical of that. I'm not being my grandmother and saying, you kids today, but that's ultimately the, the manufacturers are meeting us where we ask them to. They're making the things we've will buy. And if we're not going to buy them, they won't make them. So ultimately, that's the real solution is not develop a more fuel efficient car, it's stop using cars. But since that's not really an option, we have to struggle through these very complicated issues and try and chip away at them and make things that are ever less bad. But I think expecting us to be able to just flip a switch and make things that are automatically completely good is naive. I think less bad has to be our sort of uh, our MO. (laughs) Izzy Ramirez, not deputy editor of less bad, but of future perfect. Um, I did want to I wanted to give you the the final word here. Like, what did you as a person kind of take away? We started with you at the top. What do you take away from having written this uh, story? Your stuff is actually worse now. I think it's hard because I love buying things. Like I'm not going <laughs> to lie to you guys. I love a little treat. I love purchasing items. Um, and it was a source of frustration that like, as someone who loves to buy things, like why isn't my stuff good? And so for me, it's like, as a young person, I really want to be more mindful. I want to be more intentional with what I buy. I want to have more energy and um, a greater desire to learn how to keep what I own. Um, I'm actually one of my New Year's resolutions this year is to uh, learn how to sew. I will keep y'all updated on how that goes. Um, but yeah, I think I don't want people to feel like, oh, like this is, you know, hopeless, like and feed into that doom. Like there's so much that we can do to keep the objects that we love and that we're excited about in our lives. And um, a lot of that is education. A lot of that's advocacy. And I'm hopeful that, you know, this piece can help uh, keep that discussion going. Thank you so much, uh, Izzy Ramirez, deputy editor of Future Perfect, a section of Vox focused on making the world a better place. She's the author of the recent article, Your Stuff is Actually Worse Now, which inspired this show. We've also been joined by Matthew Bird, who teaches industrial design at the Rhode Island School of Design, and Kyle Weens, co-founder and CEO of iFixit. Thank you to all three of you, as well as to all the people who called and, and wrote in today. That was really fun. This Hour of Form is produced by Blanca Torres, Grace Wan, Catherine Monaghan, Jennifer Ng, and Lakshmi Sarah. Marlena Jackson-Rotondo is our engagement producer. Judy Campbell's lead producer. Our engineer is Danny Bringer. Our intern is Lulu Ralda. Susan Davis, senior producer. VP of News is Ethan Tovin-Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another Hour Ahead with guest host, Rachel Myro. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. 
And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.